Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you an unbiased lens on investing in capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. On today's show, we're exploring a topic that is at the center of some of the most fascinating debates in investing, ESG, or environmental, social, and governance considerations. My guest brings a wealth of experience to the topic. Heidi Ridley is a CFA charter holder and co-founder of Radiant ESG, a consulting firm that advises on approaches to ESG investing and programs that promote diversity and inclusion with an emphasis on culture. Most recently, she was the CEO of Rosenberg Equities, a $20 billion pioneer in systematic investing. Under her leadership, Rosenberg became the first fully ESG-integrated quantitative manager. Heidi tells us how she became an ESG convert and what it has been like to launch a firm during a global pandemic. She also talks about her unique background and how it shaped her path in life. Along the way, we also talk about the threats and opportunities that companies face related to ESG and what it takes to build a strong, firm culture. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Heidi Ridley, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, it's so great to have you on the show today. And we're going to spend a lot of our time talking about ESG, um, which you say is probably the single most important change to asset management. So I thought an interesting place for us to start would be for you to tell us your ESG conversion story. How did you become a true believer? Yeah, it, it, it actually is a conversion story. And what's interesting about it is it's a conversion story on both a professional and a personal level to some degree. Um, we uh, at Rosenberg Equities, which is the, the former firm that I was at, we had a pretty successful uh, core equity strategy that uh, we really wanted to take more mainstream. And one of the key markets we were looking at was Australia. It's, an, it's a market that we've always um, you know, really gravitated towards. It's a very sophisticated uh, set of investors that tend to be kind of on the leading edge of, of new ideas. And at the time, this was in 2014, we were told that the strategy really had to be ESG integrated because, of course, Australia was already more at the forefront then. And, you know, we were quants. So we were naturally uh, very cautious about that, given that the ESG data sets were even less advanced than they are now. And really try to think about how we might effectively incorporate ESG considerations and do no harm to the portfolio, because we were still in the land of you know, generally speaking, um, not really understanding whether it was additive or, or not, still sort sort of in the early days. And so we worked actually at the time with the responsible investing team of our parent company and effectively brought in their proprietary ESG uh, scoring system into our optimization process as we constructed the portfolio because we didn't want to affect the investment outcome in any way and at the same time wanted to improve. Uh, the ESG KPIs of the portfolio. So we started that process and uh, it started to go rather well. I thought that the ESG scoring system that they had was pretty well informed and we were not finding that there were any issues with the investment portfolio, which happened to have quite a bit of breadth, which I think is beneficial in, in that context. And uh, 
Fast forward three years later, I took over as CEO uh, of Rosenberg, and we had an important decision to make because we now had a strategy that had delivered, you know, very strong risk-adjusted returns, and we had proven to ourselves, at least, that uh, the ESG considerations weren't detracting. But we also instinctively felt that there were insights in those ESG um, in those ESG considerations that could have implications for companies over the long term. And, you know, really being sort of strong researchers, really feeling like we had um, an interest and a commitment to exploring that and to understanding what kinds of environmental, social, or governance issues could affect uh, a company in terms of its underlying fundamentals. And so we, uh, we had started to do some of our own research, for example, on things like, do we think investors actually penalize carbon footprint? Um, do we think that having um, a better diversity profile gives you know some of the more profitable companies a profitability moat? And that was really rich research. And so you know that combined with our practical experience managing an ESG integrated strategy uh, successfully really brought us to a crossroads of do we do more ESG versions of our strategies or do we embed, ESG considerations into our core investment philosophy. And, and I'll tell you, it was a very multifaceted conversation, especially with a group of quants where, you know, the natural instinct is to want to backtest your way into confidence. And, and we just weren't in a position to do that. And so, um, you know, the data was still you know, slowly improving, but, you know, the reality is that we also felt we weren't any worse off than anyone else and certainly had the advantage of being you know, a pioneer in quant investing and having years of experience working with new and, and unwieldy data sets. And so you know, we went on our instinct uh, as investors and fully in integrated ESG considerations you know, across all of our strategies. Um, at the same time, you know, my own personal beliefs began to grow as our professional convictions did uh, on this topic. And so I began to share our research and you know, talk more about how critical it is for asset owners to think about the implications of their investment decisions you know, in a broader context. And it was, the, it was late 2017 um, when I spoke at my first client event uh, as CEO. And interestingly, afterwards, I was told that you know, everyone was so used to hearing um, that perspective from the head of sustainability or the head of responsible investing or the head of ESG, but but rarely a CEO. And um, so really, you know, at that moment, it was kind of eye opening. And I felt like, you know, I really had a responsibility with the opportunity that I had as CEO of a $20 billion quant firm to help raise that awareness and to compel the industry to uh, acknowledge that we're facing profound change and that to see real progress on you know, key environmental, social, and governance issues, we need the capital markets to, to be a key and, and driving force. So that was sort of the, the history and the evolution of, of my journey with it. Great. Well, I guess if we fast forward to June 2020, you did something that uh, I think many would consider very brave, you launched a new firm, Radiant ESG, uh, in the middle of a, a global pandemic, and also at a time in the US, you know, when racial and social justice has come to the fore, and it's taken center stage, and there's obviously far more focus on the S of ESG. Um, tell us what it's been like to launch a firm during this time. It's certainly been interesting. Um, you know, I've been thinking about the idea for some time. I had um, 
elements of it that had emerged in my strategy and vision for Rosenberg as, as a CEO. And um, so it was something that had been percolating and really sort of synthesized into becoming almost a calling uh, earlier this year. Uh, I certainly had not anticipated that I would be launching a new venture in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, but uh, it's I think that presents sort of opportunities and and challenges uh, at the same time. So it's really interesting. But but I did really feel like no better time than now. I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's time, I really do think it's time for talk uh, to turn into tangible action. And uh, it was time for me personally to pursue something that I felt had true purpose and make the last sort of 10 to 15 plus years of, of my professional career matter. Um, you know, the reality is we we simply don't see many examples of the kind of firm that that my partner Catherine and I you know want to build. And um, you know, our our vision was really uh, to create sort of you know the asset management firm of the future uh, by embracing ESG considerations as you know a, ne a necessity in building sustainable investment portfolios. And at the same time, carving a path for women and minorities in this industry for generations to come. And that's that diversity side of it is the part where you know progress has been incredibly, incredibly slow, and there really hasn't been material change in the last last decade. So just parenthetically, you mentioned you'd spent 18 years at Rosenberg, three of the last years as a CEO. It must have been a, a gut-wrenching decision to to move and to leave. You know, it, it really, it really, really was. Um, you know, when I joined Rosenberg 18 years ago, I was really impressed with not only the the investment approach that I thought was quite unique um, and had a logic to it that sort of appealed to me, but really the culture and the people there make it an, an incredibly special place. And it's always been you know, very organically diverse. I, I can't take credit um, necessarily for creating the diversity within the organization, but given my own, you know, personal beliefs um, in, in diversity and the power that it has, uh, I certainly spent a great deal of my time as COO and chief of staff and then as CEO cultivating that and, and really trying to bring about the best in that. And, um, and, you know, doing something like that and spending that kind of time with a firm um, and with the people there, who the tenure was, you know, there were people there. My, my partner, Catherine, was at Rosenberg longer than me. So, um, you know, it's it's hard to, to not feel very invested, um, you know, and I was very invested in Rosenberg. I, I you know, really was very committed to its success. I, I continue to be um, you know, watching it so uh, from afar, I guess, in that way, and and you know, um, championing their success. But it did feel like it was time to take on a new challenge um, and to take uh, a passion I have for key topics in this industry um, and really take it to the next step and try to do things that I really couldn't do um, at Rosenberg just by construct, uh, and so. Uh, it's it's a little bit of a leap out into the void, but um, and it was hard to say goodbye. But you know, I continue to have tremendous support from uh, from the Rosenberg community, from my for former parent company, uh, in terms of what we're trying to do, and and really more broadly within the industry. I've I've spent more time in the last few months talking to 
just people across the industry in a variety of different roles. And um, the level of encouragement and support we're receiving for this vision we have for Radiant is just, um, you know, it's it's uh, really exciting, actually. it's I think we have a lot of support out there. Well, that's great. Um, I want to come back in a few minutes to the culture piece that you just touched on. But before we do, um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about Radiant ESG. Uh, we've seen sort of a rising tide of ESG this year, sort of record inflows. How is a Radiant ESG different? So what sets you apart? What is your vision for the space? Sure. Sure. We're trying to, you know, effectively at, at the 50,000 foot level, you know, Radiant ESG is intended to be a diverse owned, you know, truly ESG integrated investment um, platform investment firm. But as part of it, there is another dimension that we think is really important that it augments the investment um, approach to ESG, which is having a, a personal commitment to progressing uh, environmental, social, and governance issues, whether that is through advocacy, through mentoring, uh, through you know contribution to different initiatives that are out there. Um, you know, ultimately, we would like to be able to set aside some of the profits of the company to uh, you know invest in smaller uh, efforts to progress environmental, social, and governance issues in, in a positive direction. So, um, it's sort of got this cohesive you know message to it, but. More practically speaking, you know, we have multiple object objectives. You know, one is obviously we need to deliver superior investment results for our clients. And we intend to do that by, you know, investing in companies that that make the world a better place by being deeply committed to uh, ESG anchored portfolios through investment, divestment, and engagement. And, and I can talk a little bit about that. But you know, we do believe that in doing that, we, you know, we need to be a company that that you know is the type of company we we want to invest in and that means both authenticity we do what we say um, and playing our part as a team and in, in helping bring about necessary change in our industry as i talk about but also in the companies in which you know we invest and and at the same time to you know really demonstrate that a business led and managed largely by women and minorities can be successful and can achieve sustainable results um, which will hopefully carve a path, like I said, for, for generations to come. I think that is really the challenge, is that diversity today, in a way, I feel like, is where ESG was five years ago, where there's a feeling that there's some sort of trade-off, that you know, if you, if you back a women or minority-run firm, that you're, it's a do-good thing, and you're probably giving something up on the other side. And obviously, we're firm believers that that is not the case. We led a very successful diverse firm. And I think it's time to, to basically model the way, if, the, if that makes sense. Um, but I do think we have a particular edge uh, when it comes to ESG. You asked about how it's differentiated you know, from other strategies out there. And that edge, I think, you know, a big part of it stems from our approach to ESG investing. You know, we believe that ESG considerations represent economic information that is potentially material. It answers questions that financial statements can't. It's inherently long horizon. And when we use it to gauge management's readiness for you know, what comes next, it's forward looking in a way that most other company information isn't. And so by working at this intersection of what we call an e ESG ecosystem, 
and fundamentals, we're able to find companies that we believe, you know, will be the winners of the future. And we've adapted what we call an ESG mosaic, which is an approach uh, in which, you know, we go well beyond an operational view of companies, which is by and large the focus of most of the popularized, you know, ESG scores from the major vendors out there to viewing the company through a variety of lenses. You know, what, what does a company make and um, how, how do its product, products align with or not uh, impact themes? You know, where a company and its customers and its employees operate, how a company stacks up along uh, purely ethical dimensions. You know, what are consumers saying about the company? And very importantly, I think we need to consider a company's evolution, their path of travel, because uh, all of that gives us, you know, sort of a more robust mosaic um, with which to create a more robust assessment of companies' threats and, and opportunities and therefore as potential investments. And so we, we do worry a little uh, about some of the big passive ESG strategies out there that are really using only one type of ESG information or only looking at point-in-time company ESG footprints. A lot of them have piled into big tech names, which uh, really only look good along one or two narrow dimensions. And so we worry about performance of, uh, for e ETF participants um, as several of the names that have really run up in price recently. But we also worry that there will be a conflation then of tech and ESG in investors' minds, uh, which is really a mistake. So we're trying to bring more sophistication, I guess, to um, to this topic. So, so Heidi, let me ask you a follow-up question because I've read this, uh, something that you said that you think that companies face threats and opportunities related to ESG and that needs to be a core part of a sound investment decision and investment practice. Can you just unpack that a little bit in terms of the threats and the opportunities? Sure, I think the, the threats come in you know, many forms, you know, all of which have the potential to affect a company's earnings potential, its actual fundamentals, you know, its valuation and or it, its risk profile. Um, some examples that I can think of are, are, are the risk of, of regulatory change you know, that results from company behavior running afoul of you know, societal norms that results in regulation. So if you think about tobacco, for example, um, you know, on top of that, you know, I think you know, besides the terrible health and safety record uh, that they have, there's been unscrupulous you know, advertising in particular to children and minorities. And through an ESG lens, those companies you know, look like a risk that isn't worth taking um, given the increased oversight from regulators globally. So that's, that's one example. I think company, company decisions in terms of knock-on effects in terms of the supply chain. Uh, you know, thinking about, um, for example, I think it was last week, there was a large uh, automaker, American uh, auto manufacturer that said it was going to be allocating, you know, $2 billion for an electric vehicle manufacturing site. So that's potentially bad news for suppliers that produce, you know, component parts for combustion engines or exhaust systems. And so the knock-on effect to the to smaller suppliers can't be, you know, overstated in something like that. Um, violation of license to operate. 
So, you know, there's uh, there was a British fashion site that I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with that was found to have, you know, significant labor issues in terms of sweatshops and its supply chain. And consumers, you know, reacted by boycotting the site, causing revenue loss, and there was significant, you know, negative news coverage, so on and so forth. And, and I guess that the other one or the final one that I could think of off the top of my head would be you know, a, a large social media um, company that was found to have, you know, um, real, you know, uh, sorry, a, a large social media company that was boycotted by other large companies that protested their social media policy. So, you know, those to me are examples of very real threats that fall under sort of an E, S, or G umbrella, but are really affecting companies at, at their core, you know, in terms of, of their revenues or the risks that they're facing or the regulation or taxation or things like that. The opportunities are almost sort of the flip side of that. So, um, you know, thinking about new products and services that will be in demand. So, um, you know, if you think about the the auto company example that I gave, you know, there are going to be companies that could benefit from that because they're, you know, they're going green in terms of their decision or they supply, you know, EV parts and, and technology. Um, there's increasing, you know, efficiencies, companies that invest in resource saving technology and chart their own path to to efficiency are far less likely to be sort of backed into a corner with respect to technology, taxation or regulation. Uh, improving diversity, which we've, we've talked about, you know, companies um, are going one of two directions when it comes to diversity, you know, those who are anchored to, to the status quo and those who are evolving. And we see significant upside associated with increasing diversity as, as more and more research, you know, really points to better decision making among heterogeneous groups. Um, and, and then finally, I think anticipating consumer preference. So uh, companies that can anticipate consumer preferences for things like uh, packaging will be ahead of the curve, you know. Um, so thinking about, you know, the influence as well of the next generation. You know, it's funny because some people have, when I was early talking about ESG and, and millennials, they were saying, well, you know, the millennials don't have any money. And so it kind of doesn't matter. But it's it's interesting to me because, you know, number one, as a mom, I do know that millennials and the next generation have a very strong influence on our decision making and our choices, you know, but equally, you know, we're going to see a massive generational transfer of wealth that is going to land in the hands of, of first, you know, my generation and then beyond that. And, and increasingly, those generations do care about these issues. And you can see that through through social media and other ways in which they voice their, you know, unhappiness with what some companies are doing or their praise for others. And so that's where I think um, ESG is not a factor. It's not a concept in an abstract. It, it, these are underlying issues that really are going to affect a company's, you know, future um, trajectory and, and therefore, you know, very, very critical to consider in an investment context. Great. This year, there's been a lot of focus on equity, inclusion, and diversity. I know that when you were at Rosenberg, you were very intentional about building a diverse team. Um, what more needs to be done in the industry, especially in the asset management industry, and, and how hopeful are you that we'll make some progress? I still think we've got a long ways to go. Um, I do think that having more and more um, effort focused on it, discussions about it. I mean, just in the last, I think, 
three or four months, I think I've spoken on, you know, five or six panels <laughs> all on, you know, diversity. And so that's good news. And uh, that it, it is good news that people are at least making efforts to hire or put people in positions that have this role in this remit. The, the challenge will be that you can't get away from the fact that the tone has to come from the top. There has to be genuine belief that it matters and that it makes a difference in order for us to see meaningful change. Because I do think that while there are a lot of efforts, tangible efforts to expand hiring practices, to bring more diverse candidates, um, you know, in the slate of potential people that you're going to be hiring, uh, you know, those efforts will only go so far if you don't have a culture and an environment that draws out the best, that really truly brings about the benefits of diversity, which is the perspectives of those individuals. And so I think that if, if you know, in my mind, what I mean by tone from the top is that leadership really understands and values what diverse points of view bring to the table, that you're genuinely accessible, that you're open-minded, that you almost, you know, invite dissent and different points of view and different perspectives to the table, because that's what I think it's going to take to really leverage the benefits of diversity that we hear so much about and read so much about in all of the research papers that are done around the benefits of diversity. Um, you, you don't reap those benefits just by virtue of having a sea of people that look different around the room if really one or two people are always driving the decision making. And so I think that that is going to be the challenge that I'll be interested to see how much that changes, because I worry that right now, because it's coming a bit bottom up, you know, clients demanding it, um, you know, just the changing demographics and things like that, and people trying to address a demand that they see versus really understanding the true benefits, that there'll be, you know, potential efforts that aren't fruitful, because, you know, they'll... They'll hire a candidate, the candidate will come in, they'll be frustrated because they can't really get their voice across. And then um, and then that's where I think the wheels will start to come off the bus. But but I, I am optimistic because there is a lot more conversation. I do think there are a lot more firms really wanting to understand what it takes. And if they can marry that, you know, with a personal conviction in the topic, then then hopefully we'll see things move. But in the end of the day, it has to change because the reality is that companies are not going to survive, let alone thrive, if they can't reflect the changing demographics uh, and therefore changing needs and interests of their customer base. So let's stick a little bit with this tone at the top, uh, especially as it relates to culture. Um, I was actually listening to something that uh, Larry Fink was presenting a couple of weeks ago, and he thinks a lot about culture, and he worries about how remote working will affect culture. And I know that at Radiant, uh, something you think about a lot as well in the companies that you look at is culture. Um, how do you foster a good culture in a company? What are you looking for? And how do you think this remote working is affecting company culture? Yeah, what I, I mean, in terms of culture, what I think is really important is, is a culture of trust and transparency, of communication and openness, um, of collaboration. And, you know, again, what I was really trying to do at Rosenberg um, was really make the employees there feel like we're all putting our fingerprint on the future of the company. And, and therefore, 
you know, everyone's ideas are valued. Everyone's perspectives are worth consideration. And, you know, there, there were several times when I had very strong conviction in one direction and had my mind changed because of what, you know, I heard from other people. And so I think when you have a trusted space like that, first of all, it's incredible the great lengths that, that your team will go for you. Uh, you know, when they feel that they're valued, that you're all in it together, you're rowing the boat in the same direction. Um, there's incredible power in that and incredible motivation in that because, you know, you're really kind of driving toward a shared um, a shared vision and, and outcome. I think the challenges are when firms view employees as um, dispensable, as, you know, sort of uh, there for their skill sets and replaceable and, you um, and that's where I think, you know, kind of having more transactional view uh, about employees as resources uh, really is, is, is fraught with a lot of issues. I, I think that when you have built a culture that that's, that's tight like that, like I feel that Rosenberg was, it's a little bit easier to do things remotely as well because you have a high level of trust. Um, you are already naturally communicating. You know each other on a deeper level. And so you know, yeah, there are roadblocks and that you're doing it, you know, via video camera on a computer versus, you know, seeing each other in person, but it is a little bit easier to continue to, to try to maintain it, but it does take effort. It does take, you know, making that extra effort to, you know, call people or organize settings in which the team can interact, even if it is virtually. I think that when you're starting out like I am um, now with a new firm, it's certainly more challenging, but I don't think it's insurmountable. Again, we have this at least technological gift of, you know, Zoom, Skype, WebEx, you know, whatever it is, where we can at least see each other. I mean, could you imagine if this had happened, you know, 15 or 20 years ago? Um, and so I think that, you know, leveraging those kinds of tools and doing more than just meeting to discuss transaction you know projects and where projects stand and you know how you're progressing on different things but peppering that in with some more kind of social interactions and ways um, to have you, you know opportunities for the team to come together and share you know perspectives what are the challenges what are the opportunities you know how are we dealing with those but i as a leader for me what i would be doing is also checking in individually uh, with some of my key and hopefully, you know, in a larger organization, that's hard to do. So hopefully that then, you know, kind of translates down. But, um, you know, different staff members are going to have different needs. You know, you've got, uh, even if I think about my my former colleagues, you know, I have, you know, my CIO, Kathleen has got, you know, four children under the age of, of eight uh, at home. And then my co-founder, Catherine doesn't have children, but, you know, has other things that she needs to, to manage and, and take care of. And so you kind of need to individualize in a way um, the support that you give employees, I think, in times of challenge and in times of crisis. And I think that, uh, you know, it's not a one size fits all model. Uh, there has to be a willingness to tailor an approach to what, what that employee needs. But if you can do that, that goes a really long way in terms of, of engagement, of commitment, of loyalty. Uh, and I think that a lot of firms will find that they will get, you know, far more um, out of their employees 
by doing that um, than if they don't. So you mentioned sort of putting in the extra effort. And if I, if I look at your career, uh, there are a series of steps along the way where you seem to have put in a lot of extra effort. Um, and I, I would love to um, hear your sort of your personal story. You know, we're all products of our backgrounds, but you have a, a very unique background uh, that really has kind of shaped your career and some of the choices you've made. Could you share uh, your background with us, please? Sure. Uh it, you know, my background has definitely shaped um, who I am, and it was not an easy background. But, you know, I do, I am very grateful for the experiences that I went through because I do think it really has given me some of the characteristics that I lean most heavily on and that I think have really served me incredibly well. Uh, I was born in Iran. My father's Iranian, my, mo my mom's American, and I was traveling back and forth, you know, um, quite frequently in the early years and sort of felt very, uh, you know, equally Persian and equally American. Uh, we were traveling on en route to the U.S. Uh, when I was about 10 years old and the revolution had broken out in Iran. It was not something we anticipated. And so we ended up, you know, kind of trying to rebuild here in the States. It was obviously a very tumultuous time. And my father lost, you know, everything during that during that period and really had to truly rebuild from the from the ground up in the US. And that also meant that we all pitched in and we had a responsibility to um, to do what we could to, you know, I had a paper route. We were, you know, I was working when I was in high school. And so I had a, a strong view about work ethic and the importance of work ethic early on. I also had very quick visibility into, you know, how destabilizing it can be to not have, you know, financial security and to have things sort of, you know, uh, kind of really fly by the seat of the pants, um, you know, and and so that to me really instilled a very strong work ethic and a very strong commitment to when I do something, it's 150 uh, percent, you know, it can't be partly you know, part, part of my brain or I'm, you know, thinking about other things at the same time. It has to be something that I'm deeply committed to. But I also feel that if you, if you see someone, and, and to this day, if I see someone who really has, um, really takes pride in their work and goes the extra mile, then that's someone that you want to, to support, to encourage. And I did feel like because of what I brought to the table in terms of of my own um, efforts and really drive to do better, to think about the next thing and think outside of the box, that I had a lot of support as, as a result of that, which really helped me you know, throughout my career. So one thing I had read was that you, uh, I guess when you were much younger, you thought you might open a restaurant or start in the restaurant business, but you somehow found your way into the asset management industry. How did that come about? And you know, there's a dearth of women in the industry. How do we get more women to come along? So those are two pretty different questions. It's interesting because I think that you know, I first wanted to be a doctor, then I wanted to be a lawyer, then I happened to work in a restaurant when I was in college, and uh, really enjoyed it actually. And you know, I really kind of a foodie myself, and so I thought I like the social aspect of it and. Uh, and so that's what made it kind of intriguing uh, to think about, you know, a career in in the restaurant business. But 
ultimately, I, you know, I'm not sure what it really was that kind of flipped the switch and said, you know, I felt like I needed to, I guess I just felt like I needed to get more quote serious um, about my career. Uh, and so at the time, you know, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And um, I pursued a wide range of potential opportunities from, you know, publishing to being an accountant to, you know, all different kinds of things. And I did uh, stumble into uh, a potential job with an investment banking firm that was really the start of it. And it was just a great team. I didn't know anything about the the industry. It was an executive assistant position. So I didn't really need to know a lot about the industry, but the team was a really special team and I knew it from the interview process. And so that's kind of what drove me. And I guess maybe therein lies a little bit of um, of an underpinning to, to how I think about teams and culture. But uh, it was a great start and it really hooked me right away, in particular, this idea that you can be in a position to to create financial stability for others, to help others, you know, retire um, or, you know, just have a nest egg or whatever their financial objectives were. And so that that was a pretty quick hook early on. And and so that, you know, was sort of the start of it. And then from there, I really felt like, you know, I built on that by taking my my CFA and learning more uh, about investing and it really went all over the place, interestingly enough, within asset management, however. You know, I started out with a sales and marketing, you know, focus. I did RFPs. I went into product management. You know, I've done a variety of, of different roles within, you know, this financial services industry. And so I guess segueing into what it might take to attract others, I think, I think it's a few things. You know, one... I do think the demographics of the industry need to change. It's going to be uh, difficult for us to continue to try to attract women and minorities to the business if they can't see themselves. And the good news is I've seen and met so many incredibly talented you know, women and, and minorities in the last several months as I've been looking to launch Radiant that I'm, I'm, you know, would like to get more of those faces out there and leading in the industry because there's a lot of talent out there. And I think that talent will, will draw other talent to the table. So I think, I think that's one thing. I think the other is to go back to our roots as an industry and what we're here to do, uh, which is to serve our clients and to help our clients meet their investment objectives. And, you know, to do that in the best and most thoughtful way possible and get away from doing things purely for marketing purposes or to gather assets um, and to try to increase, you know, profitability at the margins. And, and, you know, obviously those things are important to run a well-run business. But I think that if we go back to really the core purpose, I think that that will be very appealing to the next generation. And if we add on to that, this incredible opportunity that we have for the asset management industry to play, you know, a leading role in societal issues and and do that with our capital in a way that actually does in, result in better investment outcomes, then that's going to be even more powerful. So I, I am incredibly optimistic where we sit at this point in time with the changes um, that are, you know, the profound changes that we see coming, uh, if we can view it as an opportunity for us to bring about positive change. And I think that that will be an incredible attractor, you know, for the next generation. But the last thing that I, that I would say is that I do think we need to also 
um, provide that education more broadly and more deeply. So starting earlier in school with children, um, educating them about financial matters, which you know really doesn't happen. It's pretty striking. Um, but also more broadly, you know, changing our language so that it's more accessible to you know a broader group of of individuals. So we don't kind of perpetuate this sort of inequity through you know, acronyms and, and sophisticated language that can be off-putting to, um, to a wider um, part of this part of society. So I think that there's a huge opportunity here. And, um, and I'm optimistic if we think about it the right way and drive our, our resources and our leadership and our voices in the, in the right direction, if that makes sense. It does, and that's a very positive note on which to go to our final questions. This is the fun part. So the first question is, uh, you're about to embark on a, a long duration space flight and you can take with you one object. What is that object and why that object? Hmm, I think, uh, gosh, I think it would have to be a picture of my family. Uh, my family, you know, certainly means the world to me. And but, it, you know, really at my core, I'm I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a daughter, I'm a sister, I'm an aunt. Um, and I think that it would serve as a constant reminder of, of all those dimensions of me and to I think to endure any long journey, physical, emotional, spiritual, um, that grounding in self uh, is something that can be really centering and powerful. That's great. And uh, my last question, this is something we started doing really just uh, since the onset of the pandemic, is to try and close with something positive. We call it the, the ray of sunshine question. Um, and actually, a guest a couple of weeks ago talked about it as the sort of the gifts of COVID. Um, so the question really is, what do you hope will be a lasting positive change that will come about as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I think certainly the pandemic has been a swift reminder of the interconnectedness, you know, of life on Earth. You know, we're not somehow separate and distinct, you know, from our natural world, let alone each other. And that we're all connected. And the minute that we reorient ourselves in that direction is the minute that I think real progress can be made, economic, environmental, social. Um, we can have all sorts of political battles about how best to, to accomplish this, but I think the best recognition that we're in this together is not a political statement, merely a statement of fact that, you know, I think COVID is laid bare. Okay, well, this has been really, really interesting, uh, Heidi. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, Lauren. Good to have you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I am Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.